Lord, we thank you for, for the scriptures and for the truth that it tells us about who you are and about who you call us to be. Lord, I pray that we would hear from you today. Lord, that any, any word that I say uh, would be, be words that come from your heart to us and that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4 and 5. That's where we're going to be, begin today. Early on in the Gospel of Matthew, in, in chapter 5, Jesus preaches what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is, this is Jesus' longest and most famous sermon about what it means to live our life in the kingdom of God. And when we come to Matthew chapter 5, uh, this is very early on in his ministry, and Jesus has gathered a few people with him. He's called some specific people to be his disciples as well. There's, there's a group of some of the crowds that have begun to follow him as well. And we, we have a description of, of those crowds in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And I just want you to listen to these words and just to imagine the crowd of people, the kinds of people that have begun to follow Jesus at this point in his ministry. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the, the makeup of the group of people who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount that day. It's not a very impressive group of people. It's hurting and broken people, most of them outcast, most of them ostracized by their community. This is the majority of the people who listened to the Sermon on the Mount that day. And the first thing he says to this hurting and broken group of people is this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you these verses are known as the beatitude these blessings that are spoken to this unimpressive broken and hurting group of people and what Jesus reminds this hurting and broken group of people at the very beginning of this sermon known on the, as the Sermon on the Mount is that God has made himself available to them. That God has made his grace 
available to them. This, this sermon today isn't going to be on the Beatitudes, but I need to say a few things to help this sermon make sense. The second half of each of the Beatitudes, of each of these statements about who is blessed, they are descriptions of eternally good things that all of us ultimately want and ultimately need. The second half of each beatitude are descriptions of eternally good things that every single person wants and ultimately needs. Comfort, mercy, righteousness, the kingdom or rule of God in their lives, and to see God face to face. All of these things are descriptions of what all of us ultimately want and need. And none of us can earn these things on our own. The point of these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount is that human beings cannot gain what we ultimately need and want by our own efforts. What we need is something that can only be received by God's grace. The kingdom of heaven is received by those who are poor in spirit and who are persecuted. Comfort from God is received by those who mourn. Mercy is given by those who have suffered themselves by showing mercy to others. The second half of each of these beatitudes, what we receive are descriptions of eternally good things that we can't earn on our own. They must be received as a gift of God's grace. And so the picture that Matthew gives to us in this sermon up on the mountainside is Jesus teaching a group of ordinary, broken, and hurting people. And he says to them, because you have come and and you have followed me, you have entered into a new reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, you have received what you ultimately need by God's grace. And then after telling this ordinary, broken, and hurting group of people who have come to him, he turns to them and he says these very strange words. He says to them, verse 13, you are the salts of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let me read verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You, broken and hurting people, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt and light are, are both things that are necessary for human life on the earth. Uh, Salt has the task of preserving food. Now, for us in our modern world, we have freezers and refrigerators and other things that help us preserve food. But for people in that day, salt was primarily used to preserve their food. It was a necessary thing for them to have in order to preserve food and to, uh, to, to help them survive. 
And obviously we can't live without light. Light is what makes plants grow. Light is what helps us to see and to navigate our world. No light, no life. Salt and light are both necessary for human life in the world. And Jesus turns to this group of ordinary, broken and hurting people, turns to his disciples, turns to you, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's a strange and bold claim to make to this group of people. I really wonder what they must have thought. It really seems to me actually to be something that Jesus should really only say about himself. Jesus would say, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but that's not what he says. He turns to this group of people who have chosen to follow him, who have come under his reign and his kingdom and says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It seems to me that from God's perspective, that the world can get along without a lot of things, but it can't get along without beatitude kind of people. People who have received God's grace. The world can get along without the best and the brightest. The world can get along without people who are on the cutting edge. The world can survive without good, respectable citizens. The world can get along without influencers and social media celebrities. But the world can't get along without beatitude people. People who have received grace. And because they have received grace, that their entire life is fueled by grace. And they enter into their relationships and in their communities and in their neighborhoods, fueled by this grace that they have received from God, that they extend then to other people. It's this salt and light quality of beatitude kind of people that preserves life in the world. Here at Broadway, we have discerned that it is part of our calling as a church to be faithful witnesses. And we put this this kind of description of what it means for us to be a faithful witness a few years ago, and this is what it says. That God calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the city of Fort Wayne and to every other place the Holy Spirit sends us. Would you read that with me? God calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the city of Fort Wayne and to every other place the Holy Spirit sends us. One of the responsibilities that we have as a church is to be a church that is equipping people to be salt and light in the world. To be a church where the Holy Spirit is at work forming and shaping people to be the kind of people who are faithful witnesses to Jesus in their everyday life. To be a church where we are open to and creating space for the Holy Spirit to shape our lives so that we become like Jesus and so that we enter into the lives of other people, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our communities as faithful witnesses to him or as salt and light in the world. And this is really the focus of our our sermon today, that it's this idea that we are called to be faithful witnesses to Jesus in our everyday life. 
At Broadway Christian, we have, we have lots of opportunities for us to join with other people at our church to serve as a witness in the world. We have the Inasmuch ministry that has volunteers from our church and from about 30 other churches in the city that come, and they are there for that mission in order to be faithful witnesses to people who are, um, who are hurting, who um, are experiencing poverty in some way or another. We have the 410 ministry where women go into the, the strip clubs in our city and who minister as faithful witnesses there. Our evangelism team, um, at least once a month on a Saturday, go out into our city and to pray for people and to, to ask them uh, to, to, to find opportunities to declare Jesus to them. Those and many other ministries that we have are ministries that we do as, as formal ministries in our church that have a specific focus to a specific group of people. And it creates an opportunity for people that have a similar passion for those kinds of people or for, uh, for that group of people in the world to go and to be faithful witnesses together. And we're going to talk over the next two or three weeks of the way that we as a whole body of Christ here at Broadway can join with and to participate in those sorts of ministries, whether through going with people in those ministries or through supporting those things financially or through encouragement or through prayer. But today I want to focus on a different aspect of this calling to be a faithful witness. And this is the calling that each one of us has to be a faithful witness in our day-to-day lives. There's this phrase that we use in the church that describes our place as followers of Jesus in the world. And the phrase goes like this. Tell me if you've heard this before. Christians are called to be in the world, but not You guys are good. You've heard that before. Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And what this phrase is meant to typically emphasize is something important, is that we need to be on guard to the influence that the world around us has. The Christians are called to be in the world. We're not called to be cloistered off in our own communities, but we're called to do business and to live in our neighborhoods and and to to be in the world, but to not be influenced by it. And that's an important thing for us to remember. But I want us to rethink this phrase just a little bit. This phrase, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. I think I've mentioned this a few times, but I think that there's a better way to say that that's that's more biblical, really. And it's this, that followers of Jesus are not of the world, but they are sent into the world. That followers of Jesus are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. When we use the phrase, in the world, but not of the world, it puts us as Christians kind of on the defensive. It, It makes us passive. I get this feeling that we're basically saying something like, well, here we are, we're kind of stuck in this world, so we just need to do and put our best effort into making sure that it doesn't kind of make us dirty. The phrase makes the goal of the Christian life, the mission of the Christian life, as retreating, doing our best to be not of this world. But let's take a look at a biblical passage where I think this idea is found, where Jesus actually says something a little bit different. It comes in John chapter 17. So turn in your Bible just a few pages over to John chapter 17. And in this passage, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And this is what he he prays for um, his disciples, including those who were listening to him that day, as well as to us. Jesus says this, 
This is in prayer to his father. He says, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. But my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The phrase in the world, but not of the world, I I think is a little bit backwards. Here in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, for his followers, that is you and me. And he's saying that their starting point is that we are not of the world, but that we are being sent into the world. Jesus says that we actually belong to another place. Our identity is in Christ. In the world, but not of the world, makes us refugees fleeing from the world. But Jesus says that we are not of the world, we're being sent into it. And that makes us not refugees, that makes us ambassadors here. It gives us a mission and a purpose here. And so when we read the passage earlier from Matthew that we are salt and light, salt and light are both sent into the world for a purpose, to preserve life. Christians are not of the world. We belong to a different place, but we are sent into the world. This is positive. It is active. It implies mission, not retreat. Our starting point is not that we are Christians just stuck in this dirty old world. Our starting point is that we are a heavenly people, a people who belong to God, people who are sons and daughters of the king, people, beatitude kind of people, poor in spirit and meek and merciful, who know how to mourn at the suffering and injustices of our world, people who hunger and who thirst for God's righteousness, who are peacemakers and who are willing to suffer. We are not of this world, but we are sent into it to be this kind of people in the world. We're not defensive. We're not on retreat. We have been actively sent by God into the world for a purpose. At another point, Jesus says says a similar thing. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is reminding us here that the church is on the offensive. Who has walls? Is it hell or the church? Hell is the one that has walls, not the church. And it's the walls of hell that the church is going to overcome. Don't we usually think in terms of defense as if it's the church that needs to build walls in the culture around us so that the culture around us doesn't creep in and and infect us too much? But Jesus says that it's hell that's on the defensive, That the pervasive influence of the church will overcome the defensive walls of hell. And that is good news. The church is sent into the world by God. This is active. It is offensive. I meant offensive like... It's offensive in like two different ways. I just thought about that. (laughs) We are sent into the world not in our own strength, but in God's power. And interestingly, as we see in the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, God's power is demonstrated mysteriously through ordinary, broken, and hurting people. So I want to talk a little bit today about how we become people of grace 
who are then faithful witnesses, salt and light in our everyday life. And the first is that we would learn to see our everyday life. So this is point number one. You can write it in your bulletin. Point number one. How do we become people of grace who are faithful witnesses in our everyday life? Point number one is this, is to see your own everyday life as the primary place of God's transforming work. To see your everyday life as the primary place of God's transforming work. And first of all, to see that as God's transforming work in your own life, in your own heart. I said a few weeks ago that the most faithful witnesses are not those who have the biggest crowds or the most converts, but are those people who look the most like Jesus. A faithful witness is someone who is on the journey of becoming like Jesus themselves. And this becoming like Jesus happens, it happens in our ordinary, every experiences of joy and sorrow, frustration, disappointment, success, in the frustrating relationships that we have with our coworkers or our neighbor or our spouse or our children or our parents. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit happens primarily in your life in the context of your own everyday life. Mountaintop experiences, they have their place. We see that in the Bible, that there are turning points in people's lives where we have, they have this mountaintop experience where they encounter God and it becomes a turning point in their life. And many of you probably have stories about that, of some sort of mountaintop experience in your life where it serves as kind of an anchor point for you. Mountaintop experiences are important. The Sunday morning gathering where we come on Sunday morning and we join together and and praising God together and joining together and hearing the same word of God spoken to each one of us. And we join together and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's an important part of our life following Christ. It it, it encourages us. It reminds us that we're not alone. It it orients us to, to what's really real in the world. But I suggest to you that where most of the action is of God's work in your own life and heart, most of his action is not the mountaintop experiences or even here listening to Pastor Ryan's awesome sermons. Most of the action of God forming you into the image of Jesus is in the context of your ordinary everyday life. In those conflicts with your spouse... In that struggle to parent your children well, in your struggle with temptation to sin, that is where you are becoming who you are becoming, for better or for worse. Your everyday life is where your formation is happening. And that's because it's in your everyday life where you're discovering how much grace you really need. On the mountaintop, or even here at church on Sunday morning, there's a way in which it's kind of easy to follow Jesus there. In those circumstances, there's a whole lot of attention and effort and support to make sure that he's the focus in those moments. But in the everyday, that's where we're really exposed for being the frauds that we are, right? In the everyday, we discover how massive the gap is between this ideal of where we know we should be and where we actually are. There's this huge gap between where we are right now in our life and where God's calling us to be. 
And it's in our everyday life where we, fo- we, we like come to the, the edge of that chasm. <laughs> and we're going to have to face it. And what I want to say to you is that it's when we face the gap between these two things, where we are and where we're called to be, that that's where God's grace shows up. So, moms and dads, the, at the end of the day, when you realize that for the dozenth time you've yelled at your kids, and how much that may hurt or grieve your heart, and where the gap is from being the kind of parent that you have in your mind that you want to be in the one that you are, that's where you can turn and experience the grace of God in your life. Husbands and wives, you're struggling in your marriage. You're wrestling with one another. You're hurting one another. You're coming up against that gap on a day-to-day basis of how far you're falling short. This is where the grace of God comes. Where you admit that that's the reality and ask for his help. Ask for him to come and to bring his help. It's right there in that place in that hard and difficult place of your everyday life where you're coming up short, that's where God wants to be most alive in your life. The person that you are becoming, the kind of character that is being formed and shaped in you, that doesn't really happen on the mountaintop. It happens in your day-to-day life. Your character, the person that you are on the inside is being formed by Christ day by day through the power of His Spirit. As you submit yourselves to him, as you confess your sin, as you recognize how far you've fallen short and ask for God's grace over and over again. So, how do we become people of God's grace who are faithful witnesses in the world? Is that we recognize that it is our everyday life where the Holy Spirit is most at work, making us like Jesus. Secondly, I want to suggest to you that you and I need to know our calling. Second way that we become people of God's grace, who serve as faithful witnesses in the world, as salt and light in the world, is that we be a people who know our calling. At Broadway Christian Church, we have this strange but important conviction that the God of the universe speaks to us, that we can discern his voice, and that we can respond. We believe, we have this conviction that the God of the universe can speak to us, that we can hear his voice and we can respond. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus has different words to speak to each one of us. The way he is calling us to follow him is different. The way he is calling you to be a witness in the world is different from the way he's calling me to be a witness in the world. And we see this in the gospel stories. That Jesus called and challenged Peter differently than he called and challenged Levi or Simon or John. There were particular things that Peter needed to learn, particular parts of his character that needed to be refined in order to do the work that God had called Peter to do. And so we see in the stories the way that Jesus interacts with Peter is unique to the way that he interacts with the other disciples. We see this in in other people that Jesus encounters. There were two different rich men in the Gospels that came to Jesus. One was the rich young ruler, and the other was Zacchaeus. Both rich men, and Jesus has a different, 
a different curriculum or a different challenge for the way that they are called to be disciples. He says to the rich young ruler, for whatever reason, you have to give up everything you have and come follow me. He doesn't say the same thing to Zacchaeus. He says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you need to give half of your wealth and then you need to come and invite me over for supper. And that's part of what Zacchaeus's particular calling, a particular challenge in Zacchaeus's life was. He he challenged Martha differently than he did Mary. He knows every part of us, every part of you that needs to be changed. And if we're willing to listen and to obey, we can say yes to the challenges that he gives to us and to walk in them. So at Broadway, we have this conviction that the God of the universe speaks to us, that we can learn to hear his voice and that we can respond to it. We believe that one of the primary places that God speaks to us is through the scriptures. And so one of the things that we are calling you to do in your small groups over the next few weeks is to put together something that we call your personal biblical mandate. How many of you have done this already? Put together your personal biblical mandate. Well done. In about four weeks, every hand needs to be raised. Personal biblical mandate. Now, what do we mean by this? When we read the scriptures, they speak to each one of truth to each one of us generally. Like there, there, are, there are general truths that are true for all people, true for every follower of Jesus that we learn in here. But when we become a follower of Jesus, what we discover is that there are some verses or some stories that are particularly important to you. Some verse that you learned when you were five and you learned a hundred other verses, but that's the one that sticks in your head. Or some story about Jesus and the way he encountered somebody that moved you. And that story has become really an orienting story for how you encounter Jesus in your own life. And what we want to suggest to you is that those things are in no way an accident. The scriptures and the stories that have remained firmly planted in your heart, they are there for a reason. And they have actually been given to you in order to give you what we're calling a mandate, a, uh, a permission to act in a certain way. And so what we're asking for you to do is, and it's in your... Uh, in your faithful witness curriculum over the next few weeks is to take some time. And there's a process for you here, a very clear process, a step-by-step process for those of you who like rules. There's a very clear step-by-step process for how to come to naming the important scriptures or stories in your life and to begin to make connections to how those scriptures or stories then may be calling you to live in a certain way or to act in a certain way in the world. It's your personal biblical mandate. We believe that just as Jesus had a unique discipleship curriculum and challenge for Peter, he has a unique discipleship curriculum for Ross and for Sage and for Katie and for me and for Mike and for every person in this room. That he is at work changing your character in a particular way to prepare you to be the person in the witness that he's calling you to be in the world. So please give this some time and some attention. Um, It's one of those exercises that the more time you invest in it, the 
more productive and fruitful it will be for you in your life. So I would encourage you to, to give it some time over the next few weeks. Okay, last thing. How do we become people of grace who are salt and light or faithful witnesses in the world around us? Just as our everyday life is the place where God is transforming us, our everyday life is also our primary place of witness in the world. So as I said before, there are different ministries that you, that you may participate in here at Broadway, and we're going to talk about the important, vital role that those play in our own lives and in the lives of our church. But what it, the truth is that most of us live like 90%, 95% of our lives somewhere other than some formal ministry that we do here at Broadway, right? 95% of our lives is lived doing something else often than the ministries here at Broadway. And so we want to be clear that our call to be a faithful witness, that that's primarily happens in our everyday life. And I just want to, to finish today by sharing four stories from my own life very quickly, four stories from my own life of um, either opportunities that I've taken and some that I have not taken to be the faithful witness that God has called me to be. Example number one, these are examples from my own everyday life where I've been called to be a faithful witness and even either taken that opportunity or I haven't. The first is uh, a young man named Eric Rhodes who we saw get baptized about a month ago. Okay, so I got a call from Eric's sister like six weeks ago and said, uh, my brother Eric, he's kind of shy, but he, would really, he really thinks that he'd like to be baptized. Would you will, be willing to talk to him? And I said, of course. And so I set up a, a time to talk with Eric, and Eric and I met two or three times and just talked through what it meant to follow Jesus. I was able to share with him my story, open up the Bible with him, talk about what that means, and he made a decision for Christ. Amen. Eric and his family, by the way, are in Michigan, and we've connected them to a church there. And so please be praying for Eric and for his family. Now, this is something specific to my everyday life that you all don't have. My everyday life is this vocation or calling to be a pastor. And so sometimes people pick up the phone and they call a church and they say, hey, I'm going through something and I really need to see a pastor. I have certain doors that are open to me in my everyday life that you don't have. But what I want to remind you today is that you have open doors that I don't have. I'm a pastor, and for some people, that means some bad things. That means professional Christian. That means some reminder of something that happened to me a long time ago. And you are, have unique open doors to you that I don't have. So I want you to encourage you to think about what open doors has God given to you in your life, in your everyday life, where people just may come to you and, and ask for help or to, to ask for something or to ask for prayer because they know you're a Christian or whatever. Just to be open to those times when people come to you. Second story. A few months ago, I looked outside our front window and there was um, a young man on the side of the road and he was obviously having a really difficult time with his car. And so I went out to see if he could have any help. I let him know very clearly, I'm not going to be able to help you fix your car. But is there some other way that I can help? Nick Easterday says an amen from the balcony. <laughs> he knows my ineptitude in those sorts of areas. Um, but he needed to go. His friend on the south side of town had some tool that he needed. And I, he said, I really need to ride there. I said, well, let's do it. Got in the car. 
went on the way there, and it was very clear to me in this moment that this was an opportunity for me um, to, to turn matters to spiritual things. Just began sharing some really difficult things that were going on in his life. Um, I began to ask him about his own spiritual life and his connection with God. Had a really great connection, really good conversation. And over the next um, a couple weeks, I got his phone number. I sent some texts to him back and forth. I've never heard from him again. But in that moment, um, I felt like it was really important for me to talk to him about spiritual things, and I, I did that. Example number three. A few months ago, I was at the library with my kids, and I was sitting down, and across the room was a woman there. It looked like a woman who was probably there with her grandchildren. And as I was sitting across the room, this woman looked very tired and very sad. And I felt a very clear calling in my heart to go across the room and to sit down next to her and to say, ma'am, is there some way that I can pray for you? But I really don't like talking to strangers. It's really hard for me. I have never really liked it very much. And I sat there and I sat there and I sat there and I, and I didn't do it. I missed the opportunity in that moment to use the, the pastoral gifts that God has given to me to meet a person who was clearly to me struggling and in pain and lonely. Example number four. The people that I really most like to share my faith with are actually people that I'm not intentionally sharing my faith with. Um, I have some friends and family members in my life who we've just gotten to the point in our relationship together where they they know who I am, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus. And there's something about the way that I've opened up my life to them and shared my weaknesses and my doubts and my lack of faith that has created a lot of space for them in their life to talk with me about those things. And that's an important thing for me. Uh, Lee Daly and I have two friends that we play board games with. We try to do about once a month. And uh, these two friends, uh, Peter and Keith, just really good friends. And I, I don't have like a target for Peter and Keith. They're just my friends. And over time, we have grown to have a kind of relationship with one another where we're able to share very honestly about the journey of faith that we have. And that is opening doors for other conversations uh, to talk about those things. The people that I most like talking with about faith are people who um, have maybe chosen to not believe, but that Jesus haunts them in some way. There's just this nagging thing in their life that they can't shake. They just can't shake Jesus, even though they've chosen not to believe. And I feel like for, for me in my life, they're like the reverse of me. Like I've chosen to believe and I really do believe these things, but there's this temptation to unbelief in my life that is real and allows me then to make these connections with them and to share with them that in my life, this is how I navigate the world of faith. So those are four examples for me in my own life where um, I'm seeking to be a witness in the everyday moments of my life. And so I'd just like for us to take a minute to be quiet and for you to, to consider the opportunities that you have. Um, 
Both Peter and Paul both talk about making the most of our opportunities or being ready in season and out of season um, to give give a word about the hope that we have. And so it's like for to you to ask you to just take a moment and to be quiet and to ask what opportunities are in front of you or that God may be bringing to you for you to be a faithful witness, a person filled with grace to be salt and light to another. Father in heaven, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to be faithful witnesses to Jesus in our everyday life here in the city of Fort Wayne and to any and other place that you send us. Amen.